Hello, entertainment law nerds, enthusiasts, and aficionados, and welcome to the Dentons Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal Podcast. I'm your co-host, Bob Tarantino, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Caitlin Choi. Caitlin, how are you? Hi, Bob. Doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So over the last few months, we've seen a number of high-profile firings in the entertainment space, writers being removed from TV shows, celebrity endorsement contracts being terminated, usually because an individual has posted something on social media that others found distasteful or otherwise unacceptable. Those firings were likely made possible by the presence of what are referred to as morals clauses in the contracts those individuals entered into. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about morals clauses, what they are, how they can go wrong, and how to make them work. We'll be drawing in particular on a blog post written by Kaylin entitled, What Makes a Good Morals Clause, which you can find at the Denton's Entertainment Group blog at entertainmentmedialawsignal.com. In this episode, we'll provide you with the five W's of drafting morals clauses and discuss the Zygomanis case, a case about a morals clause that went all the way to the Ontario Court of Appeal. But first, our usual disclaimer. The contents of this podcast do not constitute legal advice, so please reach out to us or other counsel if you require guidance on your specific legal matters. Okay, so let's start by defining our terms. What is a morals clause? A morals clause is a provision in a contract which stipulates that certain actions or activities undertaken in an individual's private life can be grounds for termination of the contract. For entertainment lawyers like us, these sorts of clauses most often arise in actor and host agreements and celebrity endorsement contracts, but they can be found in any number of contexts. If you have an agreement where one contracting party is concerned about the potential reputational damage caused by contracting with the other party, then a morals clause may be appropriate. The primary purpose of a morals clause in any contract is to provide the engaging party with the ability to cut ties with the other party if they become a liability. So as I mentioned, a morals clause gives one party a contractual out. A reverse morals clause does the opposite and gives the hired party, in most cases the individual, a similar right to terminate the arrangement if the hiring party does something that may tarnish their brand. These clauses are becoming more relevant in today's day and age with corporations facing more public accountability, but they've also always been relevant for individuals who have a particularly valuable public identity. So morals clauses can be short or long, simple or quite complicated. It all depends on the context. But what we can do and what we will do in this podcast is distill the drafting process for an effective morals clause into five questions. And we're calling these the five W's. See, what I'd really love is if we had like, could, like if we had a drummer, like, so not only do we not have a sound <laughs> song, we have no sound effects, right? So we've got nothing. But imagine, listener, imagine that there's a drum roll now. And we'll dive into the five W's. So the five W's, just to give a bit of a spoiler, are what, when, where, who, and then what. So the first W, what, addresses what constitutes the type of behavior that allows the hiring party to terminate or modify the agreement in question. And it's critical to consider the level of specificity to be used in identifying the nature of the conduct that gives rise to the termination rate. More abstract language tends to favor the hiring party because it captures a wider range of circumstances, while specificity tends to favor the individual being hired because it narrows the number of situations in which they can be terminated. You also need to pay attention to what we'll call binary or qualitative triggers. A binary trigger is one that can be easily ascertained. It's a yes or no answer. So for example, was the actor charged with a crime or not? 
A qualitative trigger, on the other hand, is more ambiguous. So, for example, does the conduct tend to bring somebody into disrepute? A lack of detail can present its own challenges in answering the what question. If the language is too broad, it leaves it open to interpretation and dispute among the parties, which could prolong the contractual relationship to the detriment of the hiring party. So, for example, is it the commission of a crime that breaches the morals clause, or is it getting charged with the crime that results in the breach? If it's the commission of the crime, how is that determined? That's why it's important, especially if using a qualitative trigger, so for example, the performance conduct bringing the production into disrepute or causing a scandal, to stipulate how such states of affairs are to be assessed. So for example, by saying that the production company determines whether there is a scandal in its sole discretion. And be careful of using language that may be specific to particular jurisdictions. So for example, using the term felony to describe a crime. Felony is a term found in US criminal law, but not Canadian criminal law. Be careful of terminology that may have extensive judicial consideration in some jurisdictions, but not others. So for example, the phrase moral turpitude has been considered extensively by US courts, but not by Canadian courts. And finally, when answering the what question, Consider whether there are particular activities which the hiring party is particularly sensitive about. So for example, a children's animation company might want to stipulate that performing in a pornographic film is a terminable action, so that they don't have to debate whether appearing in a pornographic film is in fact damaging to somebody's reputation. So W number two is when. A morals clause should really state that the prohibited behavior, the what, which Bob just spoke about, may have occurred at any time. This means before or during the engagement in question, while rendering services, and during personal time. The whole point of a morals clause is to capture behavior that may be beyond the scope of services, but may still be made public during the term of that contract. If something happened three months before production, and something comes out while making the movie or television show, for example, that may ruin its value in exhibition. So what you want from a morals clause is for that activity before the relationship started and during to be captured and trigger a remedy. As we'll discuss a bit later on when we talk about the Zygomanis case, this question of timing can really be fatal when it comes to a dispute. And so moving on to the third W, where. The clause should stipulate that the prohibited behavior may have occurred anywhere. It's dangerous to stipulate that the prohibited behavior can only have occurred in a particular jurisdiction. Given the increasingly global nature of audiences and markets, it can erode the value of a morals clause if it does not apply to conduct in a foreign jurisdiction. And the last two W's are who and, and what we're calling and then what. First, the clause should state whose reputation will be considered when determining whether harm has been caused. The hiring party is not always the only person requiring protection. Some examples of parties whose interests may be aligned include distributors, brand partners, and financial backers. All these groups may wish to be named amongst those who might suffer damage due to a breach of a morals clause. In terms of and then what, the process should be laid out for deciding whether a breach has occurred and how it is communicated. Essentially, who decides if there's been a breach and how do they give notice? If there's a breach, but you have to go through an undefined process of proving it, and there are no explicit remedies in place, it opens the door to lengthy dispute and uncertainties as to what the parties can actually do, how they can do it, and when it can be done. The most common remedy in a morals clause is termination, which we've mentioned, with or without a cure period, or sometimes with or without pay, but engaging parties can also get creative. Remedies may include removal of credit, subject to guild or union requirements, reduction in payment, 
arbitration, mediation, discipline, among other solutions. These can all be used as negotiating tools when dealing with a contentious morals clause, if that's appropriate in the context. So the key here is to consider all the actions that the hiring party may want to take upon breach and lay those out in a detailed plan for how those actions will be taken. Let's move on to consider the Zygomanis case, which is the most recent case in Ontario which considered a morals clause. So the case is Zygomanis versus 2156775 Ontario Inc. I like saying that. Great company. The citation, <laughs> it's an excellent company. <laughs> the citation for those interested is 2018 ONCA 116. The decision of the Ontario Superior Court got affirmed on appeal and it nicely illustrates the operation of a morals clause and highlights how carefully they must be drafted. So the morals clause in question gave the company the right to terminate the contract if the plaintiff committed an act, quote, which shocks, insults, or offends the community, or which has the effect of ridiculing public morals and decency, end quote. Zygomanis was a former player for the Toronto Maple Leafs who had been hired to endorse the company's products. He sued for breach of contract when the defendant company terminated the endorsement contract. The company had terminated the endorsement contract after media coverage occurred of the fact that nude photographs of the plaintiff had been posted online. The plaintiff had taken the photographs and sent them to his then girlfriend. It was not known who had posted the photographs on the internet. The defendant terminated the contract on the basis that it had the right to do so because the plaintiff had committed an act which fell within the defined parameters of the morals clause. It was something which had shocked, insulted, or offended the community, or which had the effect of ridiculing public morals and decency. However, the court decided in favor of Zygomanis, holding that the defendant did not have the right to terminate the contract as a result of the posting of the images online because there was no breach of the morals clause. And there was no breach for three reasons. First, the morals clause was directed at the actions of the plaintiff, and it wasn't the plaintiff who had posted the images online. Second, while the plaintiff had taken the photographs in question, he had taken them before the contract was entered into, and the morals clause did not extend to the past conduct of the plaintiff. And third, even if the clause had applied to conduct which took place before the contract was entered into, the activity of taking nude photographs of oneself and sending them to an intimate partner did not qualify as an act which shocks, insults, or offends the community, or which has the effect of ridiculing public morals and decency. From that holding, we can see that at least three of the five W's had not been properly attended to in drafting the morals clause. To recap the five W's, what are the prohibited behaviors? It is key to consider your level of specificity. When and where could the behaviors take place? These should both be very broadly defined. Who is protected by the clause? Consider third parties whose interests align with yours. And finally, and then what happens? The solutions that are presented in the clause are just as important as the terms that trigger them. So where did the Zygomanis Morals Clause go wrong? It went wrong on three of the five Ws. The what was too narrow, the when was too narrow, and the who was too narrow. So Caitlin, why don't we see morals clauses more often? Why aren't they showing up in every agreement where they might possibly be relevant? A few thoughts here. One, it may be partly out of habit. People work from precedence, and it's not always in that precedent, and they may forget in the moment. Another reason may be because some morals clauses can be contentious. So it seems daunting to add time and expense to a negotiation for adding in a morals clause. Where these things are true, we encourage clients to decide on a clause that works for them and make it part of their standard forms. These can always be adjusted and tailored to the individual uh, depending on the contract. Alternatively, 
It may be worth it to take the time to settle on some company-wide standards. These can be easily referenced and incorporated into agreements, and it can also give legitimacy to your position by showing that everyone will be held to the same standard. The bottom line is, pay attention when drafting morals clauses. Pay attention to the what, where, when, who, and then what. Tailor them to your specific circumstances, in your specific jurisdiction, with your specific sensitivities. As always, if you guys have any questions about this podcast, please reach out to Bob or myself. And thanks again for joining us on the Dentons Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal podcast. Thank you.